This week, I got a question from a viewer wanting to know if they should expand their grocery business into an importing business. We'll see what we'll see what I think. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Deal Making, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. Hey everyone, uh, Dave Barnett here, and let me read this week's question. I'll, I'll keep the the um, the viewer's name anonymous, but um, let me read the question. As you know, I have a running retail grocery store, and we buy stuff from the main city, wherever he's located, and then bring it over to their smaller city where they sell it. Um, some people have given me the idea to enter the import-export of groceries market from India, the UK, etc., I would like to know your view on this by uh, creating a YouTube video. Uh, basically, he wants to know, should I be doing what our suppliers do? So let's clearly understand what's happening here. He has a grocery store and then he goes to the bigger center and he has wholesale distributors there and they are importing stuff from the UK, India, other places around the world. And he goes there to buy things. He brings them back to his store and then he sells them. So let's think for a minute first about understanding the difference between these two types of businesses. So in a retail store, uh, retail grocery store in particular, and, and do this next time you go to your local grocery store. Um, I'll use an example. There is a, a variety of hot sauce that comes from Mexico that I like very much. And in my local grocery store, uh, I've noticed that there is never more than three bottles on the shelf. So you got your grocery store aisle, and then some things have very little shelf space. In the case of this particular product, one bottle wide, three deep. Okay. So in the grocery store, well, and it's a big chain supermarket, you know, when I buy that item, and Walmart pioneered this technology, and I bring it to the cash register, and they scan it, beep, that item now goes into their ordering system that they need one bottle from their own distribution facility so that because they've got maybe a, a, a parameter set that their inventory, normal inventory level is three items. So why would it be so little? Well, there's not many people buying it, but if a lot of people go grocery shopping on a Saturday, they wanna make sure they have at least three if three people on one day wanna buy it. Now, why are they being so tight with the control? Why don't they just put a case of it there? Why don't they just put 12? Well. It has to do with something called inventory turns. So when you're in business, you have, especially a retail business, um, you have to make an investment in your inventory. Sometimes you can borrow money in the form of a line of credit to support your inventory if you have what's called a fungible inventory. But if you have a lot of specialty items and you have things that go bad, like a grocery store would, expiry dates, whatnot, it can become more difficult to use financing to support the value of your inventory. And so you end up having to use your own money to an increasing degree to, to support that inventory. And so if you invest a lot of money in inventory, even though it's invested in something that will turn into cash, 
if the inventory turns are slow, if it takes you three months to sell 12 bottles, then your, your money is tied up over that period of time, right? And if the margin on each bottle sold is quite small, the rate of return on that investment might not be commensurate with the risk profile of the business. I see this a lot where people will be in a certain industry where maybe businesses are selling for 2.4 times earnings. That would, if we flip that around, indicate that you need like a 40 or 50% rate of return on um, or 40% rate of return on the earnings in that business, the amount invested in order for it to make sense to get into that industry. But if your in inventory is moving really slowly and you're only getting back like 20% rate of return on that inventory, then that inventory is a drag on the performance of the business. It doesn't make sense to invest your money there. And so currently in your existing business, you're going to your distributor and they're making this stuff available to you in various quantities. You take what you can sell in the next week or two, depending on how often you go to your wholesaler and you bring it back to your store and you turn it over. So you earn your margins, you get your cash back and then you go back to the supplier and you get stuff again. Now, when you become an importer, the model changes and here's why. It doesn't really make sense to order a case of hot sauce from Mexico, right? Because the only way to get it to me would be realistically would be like to send it in a courier and the cost of shipping might be more than the hot sauce is worth. And so the only way to really bring that stuff in from another country is at a minimum to order a pallet load, but more likely you're talking about a container load, at least a 20 foot container. And if you're buying a lot from one particular country, then you might be able to do shipping consolidation where you have a bunch of orders arriving at a logistics company in that foreign country, and they're putting all of your different orders together in one container, right? So now in order for your costs not to get out of control, it's necessary to increase sometimes tremendously the volume of what you're buying. So the problem then becomes inventory turns. Let me give you an example. And your, your question is, is just perfectly timed because literally last week I looked at a, a food import distribution business with a gentleman who was looking at buying it. What these people had done is over the course of four or five years, they had built up a food importing and distribution business and they were looking for niche food items that, and they were in a very big city. They, they thought, hey, you know what? There's a lot of like Greek people in our city. Maybe we can find some particular items uh, from Greece that we can represent here in the city and we can sell them into certain grocery stores in that community, right? And so they were looking for these niche products. And of course, the manufacturer in Greece is interested in having a new distributor. Of course, it makes sense. We can have another way to sell. But because of this shipping problem, they need to buy a lot of those food items in this example from Greece. So the supplier, they might be willing to offer very generous terms. And for a food manufacturer, that might be 30 to 60 days to pay. So they buy a container load of some kind of special olive, right? And they have to pay a lot of money. The supplier wants to work with them, wants to see them succeed and says, I'll give you 60 days to pay. But what if it takes nine months for them to sell all those olives, 
right? So even though the supplier has given them 60 days to pay, in that 60-day period, they haven't had an opportunity to move all the olives. Uh, they've moved some of them, but not enough to cover the bill. So they end up having to cover the cost of that inventory investment. And then over the course of the next few months, they, they slowly sell out that inventory and then they have to do it again. And what was happening in this particular business that was up for sale is they kept identifying new products that they wanted to carry. And the balance sheets one year after the next showed one thing that was really interesting is that the inventory investment was growing by leaps and bounds, sometimes 30, 40% increases in inventory year after year. And so what that meant was more and more and more money, more and more and more investment was being tied up in inventory because every time you add a new SKU, you're adding another set of the same problem is how do we bring in enough to make shipping uh, a small portion of the overall value of the item? And then if we can't sell it fast enough, our money gets stuck. And this is why a business like a Walmart or my local chain grocery store, they put so much money and effort into these management systems so that they're not clogging up the local retail level with a lot of valuable inventory. They're at least keeping it centralized. So my local uh, grocery store chain that has the three bottles of hot sauce, their regional distribution center might have a few cases, right? So every store that sells a bottle, they ship a bottle that night and the, the clerk goes and puts it on the shelf. And so they're doing whatever they can to minimize that inventory investment. This is just, just in-time inventory. And it's the reason why we're having so many problems with supply chain shock right now due to everything that has to do with the pandemic and everything. Because everyone out there has spent the last 30 years trying to figure out how they can have the least amount of money tied up in their inventory, right? And the reason why is because if you tie up money in inventory and it's not turning over, it's lowering your overall rates of return. So does it make sense to go directly to the source? Well, you have to ask yourself this question. If I um, am selling enough of a certain item and I, the, and I contact the supplier over in the UK or India or Greece or wherever it happens to be, and I find out how much it would cost to order directly, if they'll sell to you directly, because they may require certain minimums, for example, um, how much will I have to invest? How long will it take me to liquidate that inventory and get my money back? And does it really make sense? And oftentimes what you will find is that the efficiencies that you hope to gain are being already achieved where you're buying it today in the big city distributor. And part of that efficiency is being passed on to you as their customer. Because that distributor in the bigger city, they need the volume of your store and many others like it in order for them to solve that inventory turnover problem, right? And so the numbers may or may not work. It's, you're going to have to experiment with it. And this is often why distributors of that nature, uh, and I've, I've had a few examples of this in the past, where the wholesale distributor will create some kind of volume rebate program just like the frozen French fry will, uh, person will uh, when it comes to restaurants or many of the other kind of suppliers in these trades, they create a mechanism for stickiness. This is why Costco has the executive membership with the 2% cash back. 
they give you a reason to keep your volume with them because if their customers start to peel off and go direct, then they lose the volume, which they critically need. Your big city wholesale supplier might be consolidating containers of inventory in the UK, for example, to try to minimize shipping price. If you start going direct, they're going to lose that efficiency. And a couple of things might happen is you might discover that you're not really able to make as much money as you thought because of the inventory churn problem. And because your volume disappears, the cost of that item at the distributor may end up going up because they need to earn more money because now the volume has declined because they've lost your sale, depending on what kind of volume you're purchasing. These, these webs of logistics and distribution are incredibly complex. It really is a view of the Adam Smith invisible hand of the free market at play. Um, and basically it comes down to whether or not this makes sense if you can buy enough of it cheaply enough that the shipping is low enough priced and you're willing to tie up the money and you can still get the right rate of return. Anyway, you'll have to experiment, but those are my thoughts. If any of you out there are thinking about getting into a business, uh, one of the things I always recommend is work in that industry to get an idea if you're not familiar with it um, and, and learn from the industry by being an insider and getting paid while you learn. Uh, and then if you want to go ahead and get into it, the easiest way to do it, of course, is to buy a business. And if you want to learn how to buy a business, just head over to businessbuyeradvantage.com. It's where I list out all the different things that I do and all the different services I have, in particular, my online course, Business Buyer Advantage, uh, where you can learn the whole process about how you go out and find and buy a business. It's only a few hundred dollars. And uh, a lot of people do that program, then they go out and do a deal. If you need further help, I do have a coaching program beyond that. And with that, thanks very much for the question. It's been a lot of fun. And um, we'll see you guys all next time. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy. Head over to my blog site, davidcbarnett.com, where you can learn more about me and how I work with my clients. You can learn more about my books and the online courses that I've prepared for you. You can find out about how to subscribe to my email list, the YouTube playlists, etc. There's literally hundreds of hours of content there, all for free, and I'd love for you to be my guest. Special thanks go out to Jeff Alpaw Customs for being my tailor. Men all around the world can look dangerous, just like me, with the help of Jeff Alpaw Customs. JeffAlpaw.com. Use the code DCB10 to save. They handle multiple currencies and ship anywhere you happen to be.